lost both my parents, my mom, in just the last year. I am divorced, and it was a bitter divorce. And in the process, I've ended up losing both my biological children. My youngest daughter and myself uh, had our split up, but she kind of went her way, and I know my stepdaughter at one point came to me and she begged me to quit drinking because she didn't want to see me married and have to explain it to my granddaughter. And at that point in time, I didn't care. And that granddaughter means the world to me, all my good kids do. Well, I didn't have really any faith or any religious background. I, it was pretty well just self-will going. I, I wasn't happy. I was suffering from alcoholism and depression. And the longer it went, the worse both got. And uh, it just got to the point I couldn't take it anymore. One night, I'd had all I could take, and I decided that I didn't decide. I hit my knees and I told God, I said, I've got to do something one way or another. And I remembered a friend that I knew that had had some recovery. So I tried to call him and left a message, and I waited waited and he never called me back and I finally got to the point the last person that didn't care I was gonna take take care of it so I loaded a gun and I put the gun to my head and I pulled the trigger. It's like slow motion I hear the bullet coming up the barrel and when it exited the barrel I heard the ricochet. Have no idea what happened. So I once reloaded, I cursed God on the way because I couldn't even perform that function right. Reloading the gun, was going back out to finish the job, and my phone rang, it was my friend. He talked me down, we set up a time to get together, but before we could get together, I had to wait a couple days, and it just so happened when we were gonna get together, it was a Sunday. And for some reason that Sunday morning I woke up and I just had this feeling I, I needed to go to church. Well, good morning, Hope. I'm, I'm glad you're here to worship with us today. Um, I'm sure you are too. Think of the last time you were, you were really, really sad. I know it's a, quite the way to start a morning, but... Um, but think about that. The last time you went through something that, that really challenged you, that caused you to have to reach out to somebody for help or to uh, get by yourself and process through something. My, my wife and I moved up here about eight months ago to, uh, to start working here at Hope Ankeny. And uh, before that, uh, for about the last 10 years, we've been working all over uh, the U.S. in different churches and different ministries. We're from this area, but uh, most recently, we spent about three years down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was working for a church there. Had been developing some really great friendships and relationships, and just as we were about to move up here to start work, uh, we learned that a very good friend of ours down there received a, a late-stage cancer diagnosis. And we were heartbroken. We were heartbroken for him, for his very young family, four kids under 18. 
Um, but it made it even more difficult for us because we knew we weren't going to be there to walk through it with them, uh, that we were on our way out of town, and that was, that was very challenging for us. They had a great support system, a great church, a lot of family and friends down there, but we wanted to be there too, to be there with them. And um, when we heard just a few weeks ago that, that he died after a nine-month battle, Again, those feelings came back. We were devastated, and I sought out uh, some time to be by myself to kind of process through that and uh, calling them up on the phone to see how things were going. What, what's that for you? Is that now? Is that happening to you right now that you're going through something that's, that's creating in, in, in you this need for, uh, for something to overcome? Uh, like I said, we moved up here about eight months ago, and one of the first people I actually met when I came to work at Hope was Darren, whose story you got to hear a little bit of on the screen. When I met him for the first time, you, you would have no idea that that was his past, that he dealt with, with such tremendous pain uh, because he's such a warm and friendly guy. The only thing I knew about Darren is that I just kept seeing him everywhere at Hope. He's everywhere. You've probably seen him too. Uh, he and his wife, Kathy, were greeting on the weekend. They were helping out with VBS and other special events, working in the coffee shop. Uh, they help out with our, our cupboard food pantry downstairs on Tuesdays. They're here on Tuesday night for Celebrate Recovery. They're just everywhere. So I called Darren and I said, hey, I think we should just meet to get to know each other because I keep seeing you all the time. So we sat down and we had coffee together, him and uh, Kathy and I, and that was the first time I really got to hear Darren's testimony. So when I was praying over this weekend and what, uh, what I felt like God wanted us to discuss together and even brainstorming with other people on our staff here, Darren's story actually came to mind because I feel like what Darren has to share with us, uh, and I asked him for permission and he agreed that we could talk about his life together, his story helps us understand what's going on in the life of Jesus where we're at today in Scripture. Uh, we're going through this current sermon series, uh, message series called The Jesus Run. Uh, it started back on Ash Wednesday and will be in this series until Easter weekend. So April 1st weekend is Easter. You heard all about our service times and really I hope to see everybody there for, for at least one of them. Um, but we wanted to look at the life of Jesus leading up to Easter. You know, we focus on Jesus' death and resurrection at, at Easter time, but there's a whole life that he lived and ministry that he did that, that's important for us to, to look at and to wrestle with. So our, our scripture reading for today came in Matthew 14. If you've got your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 14, because we're going to be looking at what's going on here. Our scripture reading for today starts in verse 13, and it starts by saying, as soon as Jesus heard the news... What news? So obviously we're jumping into the middle of a story. This isn't the whole story. You know, the, this mir the miraculous feeding of these thousands of people, that isn't the whole story. We're diving into the middle of something. You know, the Bible wasn't originally written with, um, with chapter numbers and verse numbers, and we use those. It's, it's, it's good that we use them to break it up into smaller chunks and to be able to digest it piece by piece, but it's, it's a whole narrative that I would encourage you the next time you, you sit down to read the Bible, to do a quiet time or a study, read a few chapters consecutively. It'll sound different to you. Even if you run into a story that's familiar like this one, Jesus feeding the 5,000, you've heard it before possibly and you may have read it. But if you read a few chapters, you see how it fits into the larger story of Jesus' life. So take a few chapters and see what's going on the next time you sit down to, to read. So what's the news that Jesus is hearing about? Again, if you're in Matthew 14 and you look all the way to verse 1, we learn that this chapter is about the end of John the Baptist's life. John the Baptist... Uh, you might remember is Jesus' cousin, so John's mother Elizabeth was related to Jesus' mother Mary, 
And more than just being relatives or cousins, these guys were, were close. They were doing ministry together for years. John knew who Jesus was, and Jesus knew who John was. They were colleagues together, and, and John's ministry translated into what would become Jesus' ministry. They were doing life together for a long time. And in Matthew chapter 3 is the story of John baptizing Jesus. John's ministry was, uh, the prophet Isaiah said, John is going to prepare the way for the king. He's going to cry out from the wilderness to make, the, to make ready the way of the Lord. That, that John was announcing that Jesus is the king of the world who's come to set us free. And he wanted to point people to Jesus. And so he's baptizing people as a way of, of getting ready, of repenting, of, of coming clean. And Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 3 and he says, you need to baptize me too. And John says, I can't do that. I'm, you're, I'm not even fit to untie your shoes. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this is how it is supposed to be. So John baptizes him. And that's when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. John got to be a part of all of that. And John had a huge following on his own, but as Jesus rose to prominence and more people began following Jesus, John faded into the background because he knew that it was really about him, about Jesus, the coming king, the one who was going to set the world free. John continued to tell people that that was who Jesus was, that he was the true king. But, but who does that make really upset when you tell someone that there's a new king? The current king, the one who's actually sitting on the throne now, got very upset about Jesus, but especially John, because he kept saying, Jesus is the real king. So in John, uh, in Matthew chapter 14, we read about a man named Herod Antipas, the king, putting John in prison. Have you ever noticed uh, th there are a lot of Herods running around in the Bible? It's just a name that keeps coming up. There's, there are Herods everywhere. There's uh, Herod the Great, when Jesus is born. He's, current, he's the, called the king of the Jews. This is Herod Antipas. There's a Herod Archelaus. There's another Herod down the line in the New Testament. Who are these people? Is it, you know, is it the same person with different titles attached to them? Or you know, are they related? What, what's going on here? And, and, and you might even wonder, how is the ruling structure working in Jerusalem at this time? Because it's the Romans who actually try and execute Jesus. And so is it the Romans or is there a king? What's going on here? Uh, if, if you were looking for a, a moment to just kind of catch up on the hour you lost of sleep, go ahead and you can check out now. I'm really interested in the history of this. It's fascinating to me because Jesus wasn't a fictional character. Jesus was a person who really existed in time with people going, things going on around him at the time. And it's fascinating to me to see how his life relates to the rest of the world. So decades before Jesus was born, Rome conquered Jerusalem. You know, General Mark Antony, if that's a name that's familiar to you, Julius Caesar was on the throne and Rome conquered Jerusalem, but it wasn't their practice to just take over politically what's going on because they knew that their different territories had customs and cultural values that if they were to actually install a king locally, that that would help the government run more smoothly and they could just have a, a colony that would pay them taxes and tribute. So Rome actually installed Herod the Great to be the king of the Jews in this, in this region. And it was a pretty big region at the time. So parts of modern-day Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, a pretty big region. And they, they install Herod the Great to be the king of the Jews. But there was a big problem with that. He wasn't Jewish. Herod was actually called an Edomite. 
So an Edomite was a descendant of Esau. Jacob uh, birthed the descendants of Israel. Uh, Esau birthed the descendants of, of Edom. And, and that was who they installed to be the king. He was a local. He was from this part of the Middle East. But he wasn't actually Jewish. And so that caused some problems. Some people feeling like he couldn't really be the true king. He's on the throne for, for a number of years, um, and, and uh, around about, well, when Jesus was actually born, it was Herod the Great who the wise men came and talked to and said, we've seen the star in the sky. That tells us that a new king has been born. So, of course, this upsets the current king, and he, he's the one who famously puts to death all of the firstborn sons of Nazareth to try to get to Jesus as a baby. And Jesus and Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt until Herod the Great dies in about the year 4 A.D., now, typically when a king dies, that's when the oldest son would take over the throne. And, and this is where I kind of wish we were back in that sermon series from a couple of months ago. If you were here, we were using binge-worthy TV shows to help us study the book of Genesis. The, the Herods in the Bible really were kind of like the Game of Thrones. I mean, they were that corrupt, but also that confusing. There's just a lot of stuff going on. So when Herod uh, is about to die, his two oldest sons had actually tried to kill him while he was alive. So he felt like that wouldn't be a great idea if those, be, go, those guys became king. Herod Antipas was the next oldest son, and Herod the Great did not like him. So he decided to divide his kingdom up into four parts and give those four parts to different relatives. So Herod Antipas got a part, Herod Archelaus, which was another son. Herod the Great was a very humble person. He only named two of his sons Herod. He gets a part, uh, you'll read about in the Bible, Philip the Tetrarch uh, got pieces of it, and then uh, Salome I was Herod's sister, and she got part of it. This made the oldest, Herod Antipas, very angry. He goes all the way to Rome to appeal the decision, and the Roman Senate upheld it, and they said, you're going to be what is now called a tetrarchy, you know, a kingdom in four parts, and each of you will be called a king, but you won't have the whole kingdom. And so that's the, that's the situation that Jesus and John the Baptist are living in at the time. And again, all of these kings are paying taxes and tribute to the Roman government, which is why in the Bible when people say, you know, that they're as bad as tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors were Jewish locals who were collecting taxes to give to Rome. It didn't go back to them, it went back to uh, their colonizers. Now, John the Baptist would go around and continue to publicly proclaim that Jesus is the true king of Israel, and the reason why... Herod wasn't the true king of Israel, was by the way he was living his life. In Matthew 14, you read that John the Baptist accused Herod, rightly, of stealing his brother Philip's wife, who's also named Herodias. I don't even know, she had to have changed it or something. So Philip the Tetrarch, another king, Herod Antipas, steals his wife and moves her into his house. And John the Baptist says, how could you possibly be the king of God's people when you can't even keep one of the most basic laws of the Bible by stealing your brother's wife, literally? You can't possibly be the king. That king is Jesus. And so Herod throws John the Baptist in jail. Later on, some more Game of Thronesy things keep happening. And Herod's niece at a party does what we will call a, a fancy dance. There's no better way for me to put it. Uh, there are children in the room. And Herod is so, again, we'll call it impressed by this dancing of his niece, which is very, very weird. And he says, I will give you whatever you want. And because John the Baptist had been such a thorn in the side of this family, she said, I want John's head on a plate. And that's what Herod gives her. 
how senseless, how, how pointless of a death for such a great person, somebody who had been transforming the culture of this area, somebody who had been influential in Jesus' ministry as well, helping people repent, helping people realize who God really is, to die such a needless, tragic death at the hands of a corrupt family. That was how he died, and that's the news that Jesus received in Matthew 14. The news that his friend, his relative, his partner in ministry, his colleague has just been brutally and senselessly murdered. And it says that Jesus got this news and he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. It's a perfectly natural human reaction to grief and to sorrow and to pain. Jesus, it says, would often go by himself to pray, to deal with the difficulties of living life. And this was a tremendous difficulty for him. So he goes to seek some peace and some quiet, and that's when this great crowd shows up. They figure out where Jesus is going, and it says they heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Now, if there was ever a time when Jesus could just get a pass, look, everybody, this is not a great time. I just need to be alone for a while. We'll get together soon. I don't think anybody would have begrudged Jesus that at all, but that's not what Jesus does. It says immediately he had compassion on this crowd and he healed them of their illness. And you wonder what's going on here. You know, where did this crowd even come from? It's not as though this was a gathering, that Jesus had got this group of people together, that it was a teaching moment and and they weren't all from the same place. They gathered from many towns. What's happening here? The Bible doesn't tell us this, but it might be safe to infer that all of these people heard what happened to John the Baptist too. Imagine what would happen if you heard that somebody in in our church, a prominent member in our church, had been brutally murdered. You'd want to come together to figure out what happened. And they knew that John the Baptist and Jesus were close. Is Jesus safe? Is he next? What's happening? You know, if you ever think of a a story or a movie about a, a military or an army and a war, and usually an army would send a scout ahead to check out the terrain if there's any danger coming, and that person's usually in the most danger, and that was John the Baptist for Jesus. If John goes down, Jesus might be next. So we need to find him. We need to make sure he's okay. And we're hurting too. John was important to us, to this movement that was developing around Jesus. They wanted to be together for comfort, for peace, for healing, And that's when Jesus looks at this crowd and he has compassion on them and he heals them of their illnesses. Jesus is able to transform his profound sorrow into compassion for other people. Jesus was a a student of Scripture. He knew the Bible well. He knew that in Psalm 30 it tells us, You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. Jesus knew that that sorrow, that grief, that pain is not meant to last forever. Now, that's not to say that it isn't important, that if you're going through a season of grief in your life right now, that it's okay. As Christians, if, if you're new to this or if you've been in church for a long time, I want you to hear me when I say that it is okay to feel emotions about what's going on in life that the grieving process looks different for everybody. We go through it differently than other people. That it's okay. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that there is a time for grief, and that's okay, and Jesus knew that. Hebrews chapter 4 says we don't serve a God who is unsympathetic to what we go through in life. Jesus experienced sorrow. 
He was called a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Jesus cried. Jesus laughed. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He knows what we're going through. It's okay that we go through that in this life. But he also knows that that's not meant to be where we stay. In Psalm 23, if you remember, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not because I'm in it and I stay there, but because I'm walking through it, I know that God is with me. We are meant to come to the other side eventually. We are meant to heal from the things that are causing us pain in this life. But that doesn't happen alone. I think the reason Jesus stays with this crowd, this group of people, is because true healing from the things that we're going through in life happens only in community. Only with each other can we heal. We have to find a group of people who we can rally around and, and be connected to that will help us go through what we're going in life. If all we ever do is we, we stay isolated and we stay alone, that's actually when worse stuff can happen to us. But when we have a community that surrounds us, I think that's when true healing can happen. And that's certainly what, what Darren found here at Hope. Take a look. Well, a friend of ours brought us to Hope. And as soon as I walked into Hope... I could just tell the love, but I was still reluctant. When I first started coming to church, I didn't know how to pray. The serenity prayer was the best that I knew. And I had to fumble my way through that because I didn't even know it that well. But over time, I've learned to have a conversation with him. When I found out about my granddaughter last week, He's the first person I went to to talk to him. And I know he's going to fulfill my need. He, he always has. He's done above and beyond anything that I could ever imagine for me. So, and my relationship with my wife is so much better. We both got baptized last year for the first time. We become members of Hope last year, which I said I'd never be a member of the church. And we renewed our 10-year wedding vows last year. And there's countless other things, but those are the top. Let's all read this verse together. It'll be on your screen. From Galatians 6.2, let's read, Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. Now, when we think about laws what a law is, and certainly the laws of God. When, when Paul was writing the letter to the Galatians, and I think it's even carried over in today, when we think about God's laws, we think about punishment, right? That a law is something that exists to keep us on track. And I'm not saying it isn't, but that, that we only think of laws as something that you either have to do, or if you don't do it, there are severe consequences and punishment for you. And when Jesus comes, he says, you've got it kind of wrong. God's laws aren't about punishing you. God's laws are about how much He loves you, how much He doesn't want to see you hurt yourself or other people. And if people are hurting in your midst, what it really means to fulfill God's laws, the law of Christ, which is to love God and to love your neighbor, then you will bear each other's burdens, some translations say. That you'll share the load. That you won't allow people who even might have, who might have broken the rules, you won't allow them to stumble and fall casting them off and dismissing them. I'm so glad for our, our Lenten uh, uh, giving project right now, a home of hope, where we are providing funding for Ruth Harbor to be able to purchase a second home for moms who are unexpectedly pregnant. 
There are people who who many might say, well, they don't deserve help. But they absolutely do. If we follow Jesus, they're the people who we need to be looking after. They're the people whose burdens we need to help bear. Who's some weight that we need to help lift off of their shoulders. A big part of Darren's story, a way that he found a lot of healing and recovery in our church is through Celebrate Recovery. We're actually at the one-year anniversary of doing Celebrate Recovery here at Hope Ankeny, and it's been phenomenal to see all of the ways that ministry has continued to grow to support people who are going through all kinds of things in their life. I think one of the things I would love to see Celebrate Recovery continue to become for our church is, is a place where we don't just assume that people who need this type of program are dealing with the external issues of life, right? We just have this assumption that people in recovery are, are there because of alcoholism or substance abuse or things like that, but that's not really all that Celebrate Recovery is for. People who come to recovery here on Tuesday nights every week are dealing with things like depression or anger or healing from past abuses or current hurts. It's a place where you can find comfort and peace in the midst of whatever's going on in your life today or whatever might have gone on in your past. I think every single one of us, when I come to Celebrate Recovery here at this church, I get so much out of it because here's a group of people who are there for no other reason than just to share each other's burdens. So every Tuesday night, you can come and find that. Great worship, great time of community, and a chance to hear people's testimonies and stories about how God has changed their life. It's a great thing to come to because we can't, we can't do it alone. We need each other to walk through whatever we're going through. I think it's interesting though, so Galatians 6.2 is share each other's burdens, but the very next verse, Galatians 6.3 says this, if you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself, you are not that important. You got to love the Bible sometimes. I think you're really important, but the Bible says uh, if you think you're too important to help other people, you need to change your mind. You know, Jesus was God's only son. I mean, the son of God didn't think of himself as too important to, in the midst of his deepest grief and sorrow, help other people, have compassion and show love for other people, to to even heal them of their illnesses and to feed them miraculously, provide for their needs. If Jesus didn't think he was too important to help other people, who do we think we are? if we feel like we just don't have the time or the ability because we're too busy. And that's actually usually where I think most of us are. It's not that we think we're too important. I don't know if very many of us fall into that category. Sometimes maybe, but what I often struggle with is not thinking I'm too important. It's actually thinking I don't have enough to help other people, that I don't have what it takes. I think too little of what I've got. You know, that you might even be saying, well, I don't have a lot of money. What could I possibly do? I don't have a lot of time. And that's probably really true for you. I'm not as talented as other people I see doing great things. And and what could I possibly offer? The needs of this world are so great. Why would I even try? That's often where I find myself and I think where we find ourselves. We think too little of what we've got. And, And look at how Jesus addresses the situation in the miracle he performs in Matthew 15. The the disciples present this impossible situation. All of these thousands of people are gathered. It says 5,000 men plus women and children. So you could even just double it. 10,000 people are around and they're getting healing and ministry is happening. But the disciples are kind of pragmatists. They say it's getting late. We're all hungry. You know, some people have been healed. We've been doing some ministry for a few hours. Let's just call it a day. Isn't that enough? We're all hungry and tired. Let's go home. And Jesus says that's not enough. 
We're not done here yet. We're not done healing. Like I said, the grieving process doesn't have to take an hour or two. It might take a long time for you in your life. So whatever you're going through, it can take time. And Jesus says, we're not done today. There's more ministry that has to happen. You feed them some food. And they say, we don't have anything. And that's where we all go. I don't have what it takes to feed people. And Jesus says, what do you have? It might not seem like enough to you, but whatever you've got in your hands, consider what God could do when you give it to Him. Do you have loaves and fish in your life? Do you have simple elements that might be able to do something for someone? What do you have at your disposal that you can give to God and to watch Him use it? God will take simple things and turn them into great things. Mother Teresa, who's on the screen, I think we would all agree, was someone who did great things for God. And we would even be tempted to look and say, I'm not that spiritual. I don't have that kind of commitment or that ability to live in poverty all my life, helping people in need in India. I'm not that way. I don't have that ability. And that's what happens when you look at the externals of people. But thankfully, Mother Teresa's journals have been published, her talks, her papers have been published. And when you read her writings, you don't get the sense of somebody who who thought they were too important to help or thought they were even this great spiritual force in the world. When you read what she wrote and hear what she said, you get the sense of somebody who is as insecure, if not more, than we are about her ability to help. The need that she saw where she was, every day it was a choice for her to continue to get involved and to continue to offer loaves and fishes to people who who had nothing. One story that she tells, she was uh, spending time in in what were called death houses in Calcutta. The the poor couldn't go to the hospital. That was just where they went to die. It was the last stop on a hopeless road, and that's where she would spend her time with people who were about to die. And she, she said she looked over and saw a woman laying in a bed who was near death, and she could tell that she'd been by herself and over there for a while. And, and Mary, or Teresa said, I, I felt insecure. What if I go over there and she says something to me that I can't handle? She cries out for help, for for something I just can't do. What if I don't have enough for her? What if she accuses me of, why didn't somebody come sooner? I've been alone for so long and all the legitimate things we think in our heads of ways that we can't meet, meet people's needs. Instead, she summoned the ability and the courage just to walk over and she sat down next to this woman. The woman looked up at her and said, thank you, and passed away a few minutes later. Mother Teresa would continually say, the poor have given me more than I ever gave them. While I was able to give them some food and some shoes and a little bit of time and relationship, they give gratitude. And they they allowed her to see the face of Christ. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you're doing it to me. And Mary or Teresa said that whenever I just sat next to people, whenever I offered loaves and fishes to people, simple things, humble things, just got involved. Whatever I had and I gave it, I got to see Jesus in the lives of people who were being helped. And that's what happens when we share each other's burdens. We get to see Jesus in each other's lives, in the lives of people who don't come to this community yet but could, and they need to. People who need comfort and community to be able to heal from their their pain in life. You get a chance to see Jesus perform miracles whenever you're willing to give just the least little bit in service. And that can actually help you too. Part of Darren's story is that he was able to take his eyes off of his pain and find healing in serving other people in our church. Let's listen to the rest of his story. I'm normally the back row guy, out of sight, out of mind, kind of keep my head down. But 
it's so nice to greet people, and shake their hands, and the smiles on the face, see the young kids that are happy to be coming to church and dressed up, and you know, I hope it'll come also, it's the people that need help, it's so heartwarming to me, like I said, I get more out of it than I ever give, and it really doesn't take that much time on I don't take any credit for it because it's not me. It's all God. It's not me. But he's, he's just opened my heart. He changed. He changed me from the inside out. You know, it wasn't from the outside in. It was inside out. You know, the feelings inside. I've never had in my life before. And that's what amazed me about Jesus. All the people he used were just like me. They, they had no reason to be in the picture. And he found a use for them. He's found a use for me. My biggest thing, the thing I do ask for every day, is his guidance to fulfill what he has planned for me today. There's nothing I can do to change yesterday. I used to try to change yesterday all the time. There's nothing I can do about tomorrow because it's not here yet. If I can get done what he wants done today, that's all that I can ask for. And I'm going to have to have his guidance because I'm not good enough to do it on my own. God has a use for you. And you might feel like how Darren described it, that you've got no business being used by God. And those are the people God chooses to use time and again in the Bible. People who don't think of themselves as too important to be used. That's who he uses. He wants to do something through you. And if you're willing to just offer him the least little bit of whatever you have in your own two hands, he can take that and do great things through it. And pay special attention to how he does that in, in Matthew 14. Jesus says to bring the, the loaves and fishes to him he told the people to sit down and he took the five loaves and two fish and he looked up toward heaven and he blessed them. He makes them fit for service. Offers them to God and then it says he breaks them but then it says he put them back into the hands of the disciples so that they could be the ones to distribute it out. God doesn't want us just to bring our offerings, lay them at his feet and walk away. That's not how Jesus operates. Our God is a God of relationships. The thing that people need most in this world isn't necessarily the, the item that you might give, the money or the food or whatever it might be. They need you. They need a relationship with you so that the relationship with you can turn into a relationship with a God who loves them. So as you're going, as, you, as you're looking for ways to give God your loaves and fish, be ready for him to put them back into your hands so that he can see you do the ministry of reaching people for him. I'm excited to see how he's gonna do that in your life. I think it's exciting anytime we decide we're going to take whatever we've got at our disposal, give it to God and let him bless it for his work and hand it back to us to see his love flow through this church out to people who need it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a time to be reminded of who you are, of how much you love us, and that you've gone through everything that we go through. God, I, I take great comfort in knowing that, that as Jesus Christ, you experienced 
pain and temptation and hardship and sorrow and joy and happiness and, and the full range of human experience, God, you know what we go through. And so I pray that you would help us to look to you when we need our guidance and help and support in life. But I pray that you would also make us a church, a community where we can come and be honest about what we're going through so that we can find healing in community, so that we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and see what's on the other side to help other people walk through it as well. Thank you for this time, God. We, we surrender ourselves to you. Help us to see this week how we can offer up whatever we've got at our disposal to your service and to extend your love and grace to other people in our world who need it. Thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.